It's the 4th of June, 2017, and this is episode 333 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. I'm trying to look at the user-activated soft fork thing and not see hypocrisy just steaming out of its ears. And I'm really in need of you to help me understand why this is not the case, Andreas. The argument to this point about scaling, one of the arguments, let's just say one of the kind of larger arguments, has been that hard forks are the worst thing that can happen. And that in the event of a hard fork that isn't you know, meticulously planned, and even if meticulously planned, it's still probably a terrible idea. And so we've been now in this argument for two years where you can't hard fork, you can't do a variety of other things because they're all too dangerous. And the user-activated soft fork movement appears to be basically a quick way to create <laughs> a situation that looks a whole lot like a hard fork. And I'll just lay it out real quick so that you understand what I think and you can tell me where I'm wrong. The user-activated soft fork as defined in BIP 148, and there are a couple of others floating around too, so this of course is not definitive. Basically what it does is it protects people who adopt the new version, who adopt the user-activated soft fork in the event that there is ever a kind of Bitcoin flip-flop and consensus, right? So if the user-activated soft fork software begins below 50% and people who remain on the non-user-activated soft fork have the majority, under normal circumstance, that would be Bitcoin. But because of the way that this is built, it can exist with a very low relative strength compared to the rest of the network and just kind of putter along as its own network. But if it ever gets above 50% and achieves consensus reality dominance within the Bitcoin network, then the chain that had been a minority will become the majority. And there's a large potential for people who have just been making normal transactions, merchants who have just been accepting normal transactions to find themselves essentially that the transactions that they made never happened because they weren't included in blocks that were found to be valid by the chain that at the time was not the what Bitcoin is, but later became what Bitcoin is. So that sounds convoluted. It is a little convoluted. Tell me where I'm wrong. Why is this not such a hypocritical thing to be talking about at this point? Well, I don't know that you are wrong. And I think there is a whiff of hypocrisy. But I think that's kind of par for the course in the scaling debate right now. It appears that this debate has fully morphed into pure power play across the board. It's no longer about scaling. It's no longer about any technical issues. It is about who gets to make the rules and who has the power to make decisions about Bitcoin's future. And so much of it is cover for that, the real debate that's happening, which is a power struggle. And it's a power struggle against a set of consensus rules that, absent overwhelming consensus to move in a specific direction, will maintain the status quo indefinitely and thwart the attempts of most actors, I think, to seize power and, and try to move the consensus rules in a particular direction. So far, Bitcoin has proven to be remarkably resilient to this. Um, given the amount of propaganda and marketing and money that's been thrown at this power struggle, the fact that nothing has happened is, is really quite remarkable. And this burst of innovation is about all things fork, which we really didn't have two years ago. And this innovation is, is actually giving us much better options for paths forward that we can take in the scaling date, which are unfortunately clouded by the power struggle. So if you look back two years ago, first of all, the very term hard fork was barely used. Talked about changes to the network, in, but those changes were done in a variety of ways. People were still experimenting on the best way to signal, activate, and make a change to the consensus rules, an upgrade if you like, without causing disruption. Today we have not only distinctions between hard forks and soft forks, and not only several different signaling mechanisms for activating either, we also now have a further distinction between minor activated and user activated hard forks and soft forks, which basically means we have at least four categories. 
it's a bit difficult to figure out which is which. And there's actually quite heated debate on still on the definition of a hard fork, a soft fork, and when one can effectively become the other. You with me so far? I am, yeah. I think it would be prudent if you could just go through and explain a little bit about how the user-activated soft fork actually differs from how we normally make these changes. Well, why don't I take a step back and we go to a more basic question, which is what is the difference between a hard fork and a soft fork? There you go. That's excellent. I think fundamentally, the primary difference between a hard fork and a soft fork is that a hard fork expands the options, the range of the consensus. It makes things that were previously invalid subsequently become valid. So far, so good? Yeah. So for example, if we wanted to change the difficulty algorithm just straight up and say it's going to be calculated a different way. Now, because if we make something that gets calculated with a new difficulty algorithm, any nodes that haven't upgraded to understand that new difficulty algorithm will consider that new block invalid. So the old rule, by the old rules, it's invalid. But by the new rules, it's valid. Meaning that if all the nodes have upgraded, they will consider it valid and the chain will continue. If there's a mix of old and new nodes, when the old nodes consider it invalid, the unupgraded nodes consider it invalid, they will effectively stop following that chain. And if that chain continues to grow and it grows faster than the old chain, they will be effectively off the consensus chain. They will no longer be following the longest difficulty or the greatest cumulative difficulty valid chain not because the difficulty changed, not because the length changed, but because the very definition of valid changed. Hmm. And it changed in a way that broke the rules as they were before. So it's a discontinuous change. You might call it backwards incompatible, but it's actually forwards incompatible. Does that make sense? Yeah, so let me restate that. So basically what you're saying is that a hard fork is, as you said, kind of adding a new capability or something like that, or changing the meaning of something in a way that creates something entirely new that wasn't there before. And so I'll just go ahead and, and infer soft fork. Uh, soft fork is the opposite of that in that it takes a capability that's already there and the software allows the voluntary stepping down, right? So if you have 100%, you could soft fork to having only 80% of that capacity. But if you went to 101%, then that would be a hard fork. Is that right? Correct. Hard fork, the previously invalid is now valid according to new rules. Soft fork, the previously valid is now invalid according to the new rules. Now. For old clients that do not upgrade in a soft fork, the previously valid is still valid. And therefore, they'll just ignore the fact that under the new rules, it's invalid. They'll just consider it valid and continue. The new clients may see that change and say, oh, no, that's no longer valid by these new rules. It's now invalid. So you don't have to upgrade. You find your node doing less strict validation than everybody else. So here's a specific example where this happened uh, with BIP66. BIP66 uh, is now about a year and a half old. It was a change introduced in order to tighten the rules by which signatures were validated, specifically the DER encoding of ECDSA signatures in Bitcoin, and specifically to prevent certain classes of transaction malleability that were introduced in signatures. So, a signature that was valid under the previous rules may have been invalid under the new rules. And essentially, that was a tightening of the rules, not a loosening of the rules. And it was implemented as a soft fork. It actually did cause miners to fork themselves out of consensus when they said they would enforce that new rule and then didn't. They created and mined blocks that contained signatures 
that the rest of the network considered invalid because the rules had tightened and they weren't enforcing them fully. And six blocks got mined in violation of the Sotwork rules, and those miners found themselves losing those six blocks because the rest of the network rejected them. So miners can find themselves forked off of consensus if they do not upgrade to more strictly validate the rules of a soft fork, because they're staking their energy behind validating to the most current rules. I feel like we have a Bitcoin and Bitcoin problem here. So let's just add that third uh, definition I think that's missing here. We have a soft fork, which is a voluntary restriction of the current rules, which makes it so that there's a new sort of consensus, but it doesn't add anything that wasn't already there. There's a hard fork, which adds something that wasn't already there and so can be used to make kind of larger, more systemic changes, or at least in a more dramatic way. But then there's this other thing that's called a chain fork or a chain split. And I think that's what you're talking about now, now Andreas, is that even in a soft fork situation, if the consensus diverges, right, if part of the network believes this and part of the network believes this, uh, either because of not upgraded software or whatever, then you still can have a chain fork, which causes what I think many people think of as a hard fork. I think that when a lot of people think hard fork, they're thinking chain split. Right. And, and that's not what a hard fork means. Forks in general, occur continuously on an almost daily basis. On average, once a day, the Bitcoin chain forks. And it forks because consensus is an eventual settlement system, right? That converges on a common chain after a certain number of blocks. There's a reason why Miners can't collect their reward for a hundred blocks. The Coinbase is not redeemable for a hundred blocks under the consensus rules. And the reason for that is because there may be divergence in the consensus on what is the valid main chain, which is temporary and can be caused by totally natural causes. Let me give you an example. If during the production of blocks, two miners who are distant from each other in terms of network topology, and I'll simplify things and say, assuming the network topology matched geography, you've got a miner in northern Canada and a miner in Australia, both mining for blocks. They both find a valid block, totally valid by everybody's consensus rules. Everybody agrees. And they find proof of work for that valid block at the same time, perhaps slightly different blocks, right? The transactions might be in a different order. They almost certainly will be, right? So they mine these two blocks all simultaneously. And then they start telling everyone they know. So imagine now this block from Australia is now propagating out, radiating out. So it goes from Australia to Indonesia, from Indonesia to India, and it's gradually spreading. Meanwhile, there's another valid block spreading from northern Canada going in the opposite direction. It's going to North America, Central America, South America, spreading towards Europe. And somewhere in Europe, the two blocks meet each other. At that point, half the network will see the Canadian block first, half the network will see the Australian block first, and they'll have a different picture on what the current longest cumulative work valid chain is. That's a fork. It happens about once a day, slightly less than once a day on average, four or five times a week. And it gets resolved within one block. And the way it gets resolved within one block is half the network sees, let's say, the Canadian block sees the Australian block. The half the Canadian block will assume that's the longest chain valid parents and will build on top of that and start building a new block. And the other half of the network will start building on top of the Australian block. Now, at this point, the chances of them simultaneously resolving the proof of work again are, are now infinitesimal. They're much lower than what just happened happening again. So it's more likely that one of the two sides, if you like, one of the two perspectives, will produce a new block with proof of work first, with a significant time difference. And that block will be able to propagate across the entire global network before another block is found. And then, let's uh, the side that thought Canadian block was the winner builds a child on top of that and propagates it to the whole network. At this point, the whole network now sees the long game being as the one that has the Canadian block as the parent. And the Australian block has now been deprecated to a minority chain. All of the transactions that are 
in the Australian block, weren't in the Canadian block, get requeued in the mempool and get mined in the next round. So everything gets redone. And the Australian block, valid as it was, lost the race. In retrospect, that miner will not collect that reward because their block did not become, eventually, part of the longest difficulty valid chain. So this happens every single week in Bitcoin, and nobody even notices it. It's a normal consequence of the synchronization across latency. The problem is when these divergences do not reconverge, and the reason they do not reconverge is because it's not about a difference in perspective about which is the longest difficulty chain, but it's a different perspective about which is the longest difficulty valid chain. And that valid part is the consensus rules. And if there's a divergence on the interpretation of the consensus rules, or an inability to validate with the current consensus rules, as we saw with the bug in the database software back in April of 2013, then you have a persistent convergence. And that persistent convergence doesn't get resolved easily. One chain may be able to validate both sides, and then you have the possibility of what's called a wipeout where eventually what was a minority chain becomes a majority chain and then wipes out a very long sequence of blocks. And it may be that the consensus rules can only go in one way, so only one chain can wipe out the other. That's the case with the user-activated soft fork. Okay, so let me mangle one of our old analogies here. We've often talked about Bitcoin and the process of mining like a game of bingo where essentially everybody is kind of playing against themselves, but there ultimately can only be one winner per contest. It sounds like what you're saying, the kind of analogous scenario here to two miners finding a block is two people playing bingo, both find bingo at the same time. The person who gets it up to the front, you know, and gives it to the, the bingo caller, or what have you, um, is the person who actually wins that round. Uh, and there can only be one. So it's a bit of a race there. That's the propagation you're saying where both both uh, transactions, both blocks are going all over the network trying to get kind of a majority before the other guy because that makes it more likely. But but with the difference that there is no upfront, there is no leader of the game. In fact, what happens is everybody who's playing bingo at all of the different bingo tables is listening around them. And some people who are closer to one of the bingo winners will hear them shout bingo. They'll assume they're the winner for uh, some period of time. Whereas the people who are sitting closer to the other person will hear them say bingo first. And so there'll be, if you stopped everything and then did a poll and say, who do you think won the last game? You'd get a different result in on the two sides of the room because of the way the sound of their shouting bingo propagated across the room. And then we can also imagine that the rules are also propagating by the same kind of whisper network, right? Where people are saying, you know, like, this has just become invalid, right? And that's that's what a soft fork is. is and then people who don't hear about that or who don't follow those rules still go up when they get the, you know, when they get a bingo that complies with the old set of rules, but they don't, but it doesn't comply with the new set of rules. And this causes the confusion we're talking about here. Right. So let's use a different example for a soft fork. Right now, there's a block size limit that requires that all blocks be less than one megabyte in size, or less than or equal. A consensus rule change that said, actually, we want them to be less than 750k, so three quarters of a meg, not a meg, only three quarters from now on. So we're going to squeeze them smaller, right? Mm -hmm. That's a soft fork change. Mm -hmm. And the reason it's a soft fork change is because things that were previously valid are now invalid. A 800 meg block, a 800k block that was previously valid on the one megabyte limit is no longer valid under the 750k limit, right? Right. So if you're validating and you're validating by the old rules, the new 750k blocks still look fine to you because they're less than a meg, so you're cool with them. And so the chain that's producing 750k blocks it happily chugs along and everybody accepts their blocks because they're fine. They're fine by both the old and the new rules. But if somebody produces an 800k block, a big chunk of the network, perhaps the majority, will reject it because under the new rules, it's no longer valid. And when they reject it, if the part of the network that is still following the old rules, continues building on that, 
you're going to have a divergence again. And that divergence is that some people will assume the 800 block was perfectly fine because they haven't upgraded. And they'll continue building on top of that. And they'll continue and they'll continue and they'll continue. Now it becomes a race. Which side has the majority of the hash power? And the problem is that the side that has the, the side that has the, the one megabyte rule sees both chains as valid. But the side that has the 750k rule sees only one of them as valid. And therefore will never accept the other side. At some point, if that goes over 50%, it's going to reconverge as the longest chain and wipe out the other side. The side that had the 800k block will get wiped out. The opposite can't happen. The side that has the 800k block can never pull over the, the new small blockers because they refuse to see that as valid. And so one side can wipe out the other, but not vice versa. Does this make sense? It does. And that's actually the opposite of the situation we're talking about here with the user-activated software, right? Actually, actually, it's not the opposite. It's the exact same thing. So let's now talk about UASF BIP-148 very specifically. US, and I'll summarize it as best as I can. And please read the BIP because, you know, a summary is not an accurate representation of this. But the bottom line is that on August 1st, 2017, Nodes that follow UASF BIP-148 and validate based on it, it's not just signal, but actually validate based on the rules introduced by UASF BIP-148, have a new rule. And that new rule is that after August 1st, it is not acceptable to have blocks that are not signaling SegWit. They say we will only accept blocks created by miners that signal acceptance of SegWit. They don't have to be SegWit blocks. They don't have to they don't have to activate SegWit. They simply have to signal it. So far so good? Yep. What that means is if you had a node and you were running UASF BIP 148 and on August 1st a miner produces a block that is not signaling SegWit, you take that block when it comes to you and you go, nope, it's rejected and you don't get it. You refuse to propagate it. You refuse to accept it as valid. Everybody who's not working by these rules will propagate it. And how far does it go? Well, that depends. It depends on how many miners are participating in this. It depends on how many exchanges are participating in this. It depends on how many nodes are running this new set of rules. If a majority of the nodes are running this, especially a majority of the economic nodes, exchanges, merchants, retailers, wallets, etc., then miners will face a rather difficult problem, which is they're essentially facing an economic blockade. They can mine blocks without signaling SegWit, but if those blocks are rejected by the exchanges, then 100 blocks later, they can't essentially cash out. They cannot exchange their earned Bitcoin rewards for fiat to pay their electricity bills because those blocks don't exist on the exchanges blockchains because the exchanges are not recognizing them as valid blocks and therefore they're on a different chain. So at that point, it's presumably easier for a miner to simply signal SegWit and that way they know that their mining rewards are safe. On the other hand, if only a minority do this or if it's mostly nodes that are not engaged in economic activity and there are no miners supporting this, then the people who are doing this and invalidating these blocks on their own blockchain will find themselves on a minority chain with a minority of the hash power, which only they and a minority of the nodes are following, which doesn't have the majority of the transactions and economic activity on it. It doesn't have the majority of the hash power. It's slower to confirm. It has fewer transactions and is potentially has no blocks or only empty blocks. So that's, that's the two possible scenarios there, but then it gets complicated because, of course, one of the third scenarios is that miners may decide to fight. And if they decide to fight, what they can do is they can also dedicate some of their hashing power to purposefully mining empty blocks on the UASF chain in order to deny service. So it's a denial of service attack. If they mine empty blocks, no transactions are being mined on that chain. In order to do that, they then have to essentially split their hash power between maintaining the supremacy of the we won't do SegWit chain, uh, while also putting some hash power to beating down the UASF chain by denial of service with mining empty blocks. And that's a dangerous game because 
if the UASA chain takes over, it will wipe out the we're not doing SegWit chain. Whereas in order to really stop the UASF chain, you, you have to do it through attrition. People have to give up because they're not getting transaction throughput and they're not getting economic activity on it. But it, it will never get wiped out. The, the, the nodes that are following that effectively have created an altcoin at that point if it doesn't have. Right. So that sort of brings us back around to the beginning of this conversation, which was the kind of perceived hypocrisy that I saw in this. We've now talked about hard fork versus soft fork. But one of kind of the arguments that I've been making and getting some pushback on is that necessarily like user activated soft fork can only succeed by scaring people into action, because if it doesn't scare people into action, then it ha happens exactly like you said, right? You wind up with this situation where, sure, you know, you can have your own coin, but it's effectively an altcoin because you weren't able to get the majority of Bitcoin economic activity and these other things to go along with you. But it's set up in such a way that it's kind of like a booby trap, where if that's the situation that happens, starts with less than 50%, but then goes to over 50%, then that's just bad, right? <laughs> it, it seems to me that there's a fundamental kind of difference in this approach to doing things compared to anything else I've seen. This is more like an attack or an actual threat on non-participation where everything else has been, we want you to support this because this is the right choice. Please opt in. This is like a, if you don't opt out, then you have a major chance of being injured by this. Or rather, if you don't opt in. Yeah. I think it would be accurate to call it a boycott, possibly an economic blockade. And an economic blockade, if you park your ship in the other party's harbor and you don't let any other ships go in and out, that's an economic blockade, right? And the starvation is collateral damage. <laughs> if you park your ship in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and you declare an economic blockade, nobody gives a damn. So, you know, for an economic blockade to matter, you have to be able to impose it on the hubs of economic activity, or they have to be working with you, right? Right. If, if exchanges, merchants, wallets don't, in a major way, support this on August 1st, then you're the, you're, you're, you've parked your ship in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and you're going, I'm going to blockade you all. And no one around you for 10,000 miles hears your cry of defiance because nobody gives a damn. And at that point, of course, you're not doing any damage to anyone other than yourself. That is a fundamental difference. A hard fork 51% consensus or more attack forces a change on the entire network. And, and you might call it an attack. You might simply call it a 51% consensus rule change. Most people consider it reckless to do that with anything other than overwhelming consensus. And it stands a pretty good chance of causing a rift in the network. And UASF also has a chance to, to cause a rift in the network, especially if miners decide to attack the minority chain, which, is a, which would be a, you know, another escalation. It's effectively a game of chicken. I, I saw this analogy on Reddit, so I'll just, you know, attribution there to whoever said it which is that um, the only way to win a game of chicken is to very visibly take the steering wheel off and throw it out the window. <laughs> and at that point, your opponent knows that you have no ability to swerve, right? Mm. But, you know, the, there's a head-on collision possibility there always. So this is what it is. Now, the bottom line to all of this is the issue of power struggles and the fact that this is where we are now, which is it's not about scaling, really. It's about power struggle. And I think what you're seeing is, and I've said this many times before, there are five constituencies of consensus. Miners, developers, users with wallets, users with exchanges or economic actors with exchanges, and economic actors with merchant activity. So merchants, exchanges, wallets, miners, and devs. That's the five constituencies of consensus. They're not hard lines. There is overlap between any of those. Think of it a bit as a Venn diagram. You know, obviously miners who spend their money in exchanges are also economic actors, right? And of course, users can be miners. Miners can be users. They can have wallets. Miners might be merchants, et cetera, et cetera. And, and developers may come from any and all of these. But for the most part, think of these as the five constituencies. You cannot change the rules without 
a majority. Think of it as a three of five, right? So you need three of five, at least. Uh, and in order to do it in a way that's unlikely to cause a disruption, you need a four of five or a five of five agreement. Yeah. So that's how the consensus rules change. The miners have in the past suggested changing the rules by adopting software by 51% or more of the hash power under Bitcoin XT, Bitcoin Classic, Bitcoin Unlimited, and various other attempts to change the consensus rules to increase the block size by a hard fork with a 51% or more hash rate. That is absolutely going to be going to work effectively and cleanly as long as they have the, the other four constituencies with them. And if they do, it's completely seamless and harmless, but you can never get full consensus on that. You haven't seen full consensus emerge on that solution. At the moment, full consensus has not emerged on any change to the consensus rules. There is always a minority, somewhere between 20%, I think at least, and up to 50% that doesn't want one of these solutions. And so until that is overcome, a lot of this is really not going to work. And how much disruption it causes, we'll see. Maybe a lot, maybe none at all. Uh, it very much depends on who plays along with UASF. We might see a big change by August 1st. There's a bunch of other proposals at the same time that are being developed, including SegWit2x, which is the proposal that reached agreement among certain participants in the ecosystem in New York during consensus. And, you know, UASF is just one gambit. What's interesting about UASF is it's the first time you've seen the user base, wallets, and in some cases, some merchants really kind of claim their power and say, you know what, we're part of this too, and we have power. And in fact, as is the case with all of the other constituencies of consensus, the claim is not we also have power, it is we have ultimate power, Right. which, which is what miners say, which is what some developers say, which is, you know, what some exchanges have said even. Of course, all of those are false. No one has the ultimate power. That is the tenuous balance that is at the heart of a decentralized system like Bitcoin that does not allow anyone to take over. And that, of course, is the most important feature of this system. And it makes for a very nasty debates and some very difficult scaling decisions, but it also makes for a very resilient system that deters attackers and cannot be molded to the whims of someone with a lot of money and propaganda or a popular movement among users that doesn't have overwhelming consensus or miners who are pursuing their own self-interest or developer groups that are doing their own thing. None of those groups have power ultimately unless they agree with a bigger constituency. Just necessarily a user-activated soft fork or anything else that is a fork of the network is going to sounds like have to do a hard fork in order to lower the mining difficulty if they don't have, you know, like 70% of the network. If a soft fork turns into a hard fork, then it's a completely different thing, right? Right. But I mean, like, just thinking about it, like, assume for a second that we wind up in a situation where there's 40% support for UASF. In that situation, if there's 40% hashing power on that side, then that means that they either have blocks that are, you know, substantially slower than where they are, or they hard fork in order to fix it. But by hard forking to fix it, again, you negate the argument against a hard fork. Yeah, and I mean, that's, that's the case for both sides of the chain at that point. And the real consideration for a user-activated soft fork driven by the economic actors of the network is, uh, is it driven by the economic actors of the network? If, the, if it is driven by the economic actors of the network and there's overwhelming support among exchanges and merchants, then the, the miners honestly really don't have a choice. They can't mine a chain that they can't spend. It's just the redundancy you were talking about. Nobody can force a sea change here. Like, and to, to even attempt it is very risky, as we've seen reputationally, certainly. Most of the people who have attempted to do anything like that have much lower profiles and much less prestige in the space than they did before they tried to do that. And then also, technically, it's a risk to your users and to, in the case of UASF, to other users as well. I think we're going to see resolution of the scaling debate. Let me 
add that as a positive and optimistic note. And the reason we're going to see resolution of the scaling debate is rather simple. Over the last two years during the scaling debate, we have seen the emergence of more than a dozen proposals. We have seen an enormous amount of research and development and resources poured into finding technical means by which to clarify, secure, make these solutions better, uh, less disruptive, understand the implications of the different mechanisms for upgrading. The state of the art on upgrading a decentralized consensus algorithm has advanced tremendously. Two years ago, we didn't even have the term hard fork. Now we're talking about four different categories of deliberate upgrade forks, minor activated, user activated, soft fork, hard fork, and all of the combinations. And we're in fact discovering that there might be more nuances within that. SegWit didn't exist two years ago, uh, or just a bit more than two years ago. Uh, SegWit as a soft fork was an invention specifically designed to cause a less disruptive approach towards the scaling debate. And, you know, that's currently being signaled under BIP9. BIP9 itself as a signaling mechanism for minor activated um, soft forks, which were, were not signaled in that way before is a new one. SpoonNet, SpoonNet 2, and potentially SpoonNet 3, which are a series of proposals by Johnson Lau that give us a reformatting of the block header in order to solve several different problems, not just the block size, but also to make hard forks much cleaner and less disruptive by ensuring that there is replay protection, so transactions cannot be replayed from one side of the fork to the other, as well as Y-pipe protection, so that you can't have a very, very long chain developed that then gets wiped out in a reorganization. Those developments did not exist two years ago. We are now much, much more advanced in our understanding, in our uh, research, and in our development. How to do these things in a, in a live network and upgrade them. And the, the proposals that come out are more and more complicated uh, and in some cases, that's counterproductive, but they're also more and more sophisticated. Um, and you're seeing that people are actively trying to find ways to to create solutions, both political, which I don't think is the right approach, but also technical solutions to this debate that try to resolve you know, the underlying technical issues in a way that's at least disruptive possible. Um, and I'm confident that eventually we are going to see convergence on a solution that is broadly acceptable, that offers a road forward that is least disruptive, that the community and every one of the five constituencies get behind. And we will see pretty much all of the above. We're, we'll see an activation of something that is, is SegWit or very similar to segregated witness for transaction malleability and witness scaling and all of the other things that SegWit does, we are going to see a base block size increase in addition to SegWit's block weight increase eventually. We are going to see a reformatting of the block header in order to introduce new features such as extra nonces for miners, a more flexible header format that improves a lot of other issues. We, we might see um, a change in the transaction format. We're going to see Schnorr signatures. We're going to see signature aggregation techniques, we're going to see UTXO sets and potentially things like MMR, uh, Merkle Mountain Ranges, and other proposals for creating fraud proofs and verifiable UTXO sets and optimizations like that. All of the above is the scaling solution. The question that remains is not, what do we do? The question that remains is, in what sequence and how do we do it in the safest, least disruptive way to the broader ecosystem. That question has not been resolved, uh, and it's a technical issue. It's overshadowed by the political struggle and the power struggle, but at the bottom line is that this is a matter of science, and I am confident that we will see a, a road forward. So since the beginning of, I don't know, I mean, since we start, first started seeing contention in the cryptocurrency space, specifically in the Bitcoin community about, I don't even remember what the first issues were, but there have been issues for years at this point. I have long thought that the 
necessary conclusion of this process is that you have two Bitcoins for the two different core constituencies of Bitcoin. And you're talking about kind of like the different classes of users in terms of what role they play in the ecosystem. I'm thinking more about this from a what do these people actually want from Bitcoin user uh, the, the kind of uh, perspective. And the problem with where we're going is that, as you said, there are the technical concerns but a lot of this is just about who gets to decide and who gets to, you know, who gets to kind of dictate which the way, uh, which is the way that Bitcoin should develop. And so if we were looking at something that was monolithic, if we were looking at something that wasn't open source, that wasn't Bitcoin, then I would agree with you. I would say eventually, because these problems need to be solved, things will come into alignment. But the reality is, is that our technical solutions are better now, as you said, than they ever have been. Our processes for, you know, actually figuring out the science of this thing and the amount of people participating and the amount of money being poured in have never been better. And yet the contentious issues have never been more contentious, even when everybody agrees that segregated witness should go in. The reason why it hasn't gone in is because exactly of that power dynamic that you're talking about, because the one side that, you know, is holding it up basically believes that this is their leverage. And if they give up that leverage, then that's pretty much the the end of it. And the other side doesn't want to give because of technical arguments and also because they are winning. You know, they they are uh, if, if nothing changes, then uh, the status quo remains. And since that is largely more unsupportive of that position than it is of the people who are blocking it, you have this kind of uh, loggerheads. That's where I get back to is that I don't disagree with anything you said, but I think that the human element here is a much larger piece of the puzzle. And it's very difficult to see because on the one side of the argument, which is in favor of small blocks generally, many of those cha channels are frankly pretty repressive and don't really have conversations about this stuff in a way that lets you see both sides of the argument. And I'm not saying the other side is better, and I know that they'll yell at me for that too, because they yell at everybody and everybody yells at everybody. But that's the point, is that the stakes are really, really high here. And on the one hand, there are technical clear paths forward, but on the other hand, a lot of this is just kind of like, we don't really know, and so we have to pick and we have to experiment. And you can look around at experiments, and they're not very applicable, but you can see that people are you know, doing larger blocks, and you can see that people are attempting to scale in different ways. So that's what I get back to, is that you know, like contention or not, I expect to see two, two blockchains uh, that both bear the name Bitcoin, that take part of that community, and that basically don't look back at the other side. And so my continued, if it's this issue that becomes it, then what we'll see is, is a Bitcoin that has a small block size, you know, a one megabyte, maybe even gets smaller, that's Bitcoin settlement. And on the other side, you'll have, you know, Bitcoin P2P or, you know, Bitcoin cash or whatever you want to call it. And that'll be something that'll have much larger blocks. It'll mostly use SPV mining. It'll be less secured, but it'll be possible for individuals to transact on it. And I don't see that as a bad thing. I mean, it might mean that the, the value of each of them goes down. But I mean, I think if anything, Ethereum is showing uh, with Ether and Ether Classic that it doesn't really matter. It's not actually a net negative for the prices. And sure, maybe the price of Ether would be $500 now versus, you know, 250 or wherever it is at the moment. But it's still like it's a net positive regardless of how many of these things you have if there's utility and communities behind each one. And it seems like given Bitcoin's community, and again, given just all of the emotions tied up in this and the different use cases, on the one hand, you've got the settlement. On the other hand, you've got all the players like Shapeshift and BitPay who want larger blocks because they need to fit more transactions in, into the blockchain. So, I mean, like... Is that a bad outcome? And and do you not do you expect to see that happen? Do you not expect to see that happen? What do you? I mean, th that's my thesis. Been it for a while, still feeling good about it. How do you feel about it? I would hope that doesn't happen. And I think part of the reason I would hope that doesn't happen is because I'm not confident that if that happens, it will happen in any way that is not disruptive. And so the first question I would have for any proposal to create such a split is really simple. It has to do with the fundamental technology of how that split is engineered, and it has to do with whether there is replay and wipeout protection between the two chains. You can get a split that protects both chains from each other and allows it to be somewhat clean. And one of the big ones we saw uh, in Ethereum is that there was no replay protection and there was no wipeout protection. And that made it a damaging split for the ecosystem. 
and caused people to lose money. You know, several exchanges lost money because of that, because of the lack of replay protection. For an economy like Bitcoin, and with the dynamics of the difficulty retargeting in Bitcoin, that would be much messier. And I would hope to see if, if something like that did happen, I would hope to see it was organized and engineered in a responsible way with at minimum replay and wipeout protection built in. I think it is absolutely responsible not to address that since we know the damage that something like that do. I totally agree with you about the unplanned thing, right? The unplanned thing is definitely the part that makes anything like that dangerous. Anything that's contentious, it's why UASF is also dangerous. It's not because it's inherently dangerous. If it has support, there's no problem. It's only a problem if you go into it and neither side is really preparing for a situation where it winds up being contentious. But just to quote John F. Kennedy, those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. And that continues to be the trajectory that I see, is that the attempts to have this kind of peaceful conversation in a way where both sides are you know, able to compromise, let's not even say willing, let's say able to compromise in order to give the other side what they actually want while not giving up what they themselves need. I don't see that as being possible given the kind of differences in what they want from the thing. So that's that's my concern for something that's unplanned, right? Is that this just continues to get worse and worse and worse and we don't hit, you know, we continue to have problems, we don't have solutions for them because we can't get consensus because of this disconnect. That's where you wind up with the kind of violent break and then both sides struggle to fix their stuff on either of their sides. But like if we could get past that, if we could say all right, well maybe it's not that bad if there were two bitcoins, one that's for scaling on-chain and one that's for settlement on-chain at the highest security possible per transaction. It seems like that would be the path forward if we get to pick, but it seems like the most likely path forward is that we just keep banging heads against each other and eventually it happens and both sides say, screw you, I'm you know just going to go do my thing and I'll protect myself against you however I need to. Yeah, um, you know, I hope we don't have that outcome. And there's a, a couple of reasons why I hope we don't have that outcome. Effectively splitting Bitcoin in two is creating one or possibly, depending on your perspective, two altcoins. And, you know, there are 1500 plus alternative and varied cryptocurrencies and blockchains in this ecosystem, uh, which, as you say, some of them have different perspectives on scaling and governance. And I would prefer to see some of that pressure go there than see the Bitcoin chain split in two. There is another problem with splitting the Bitcoin chain in two, which has to do with the monetary policy. There will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. In a two-chain situation, there will only ever be 42 million Bitcoin. That is a problem. And I hope we don't see that happen. But if it happens, I think Bitcoin will survive it. I think inevitably there'll be some very heated debates about which one is the real Bitcoin, which uh, really doesn't matter. At that point, there will always be holdouts who will stubbornly refuse to follow upgrades. The question is, how big is that holdout group? Is it going to be 5%? Is it going to be 20%? Or is it going to be 50%? We'll see. I'm optimistic. I hope we can find a solution that doesn't involve a divorce. But, you know, if that's what it takes, yeah, I mean, that that can happen too. I just hope it doesn't. I feel like a lot of the last couple of years, for people who are looking at this technology as a solution rather than maybe a, a like a elegant technical project is been like a process of just like repeatedly killing all the sacred cows that we know about <laughs> and and you know and that happens on the code side too because on the code side as you said basically everything is being upgraded and what upgraded means is we're making it better right we're taking out the old thing and we're improving it so that it becomes more efficient and better to use for all these different reasons you know i said that the the one bubble that i feel like we've been in for four or five years, and I think I started talking about this pretty early on, is that Bitcoin is the one, right? Bitcoin is what cryptocurrency is, the pinnacle of cryptocurrency. We've talked about this lots of times before, how you know Bitcoin may fail, but it might not even necessarily fail. So, you, so you're talking about like the 42 you know, million versus 21 million. That's what I feel like there is like, how is that any different than Bitcoin not working any longer for, you know, cross-border settlement because the fees have gone up? Like that was a sacred cow too, that we took a lot of care of and a lot of pride. And it 
didn't really matter at the end of the day because turns out that's what that wasn't what Bitcoin was. So I just don't understand how how we get to pick. Oh, to me, it's very it's very easy to to determine which ones we pick and which we don't. The the current fee situation restricts the ability to use Bitcoin for several purposes that were previously possible at one scale and are no longer possible at another scale. But in my mind, the important difference is that I consider this fee environment that we have today temporary. I don't think this is the fee environment we will be in in the future. And I look back at other technologies and how they've developed over time. And I remember a time when email was unusable because of spam, uh, when attachments couldn't be sent because uh, DSL and modems didn't have enough capacity, and Usenet was flooded and by image attachments and couldn't scale when entire chunks of Usenet stopped getting used. Uh, this is the old days, of course. In, in most cases, these were temporary problems when the capacity of the network was outstripped by the demand and didn't scale fast enough. And then it did. And when it did, it opened up new applications again that previously were unavailable and things reverted back. Uh, I think the fee situation is temporary. I think a split in Bitcoin is not. It's permanent and it creates a precedence and an irreversible collapse in the resilience and governance of the system that will damage Bitcoin. Not fatally, absolutely not. And and I don't believe that Bitcoin is the one. It's not it's not a maximalist position that leads me to do this. It's just that I think that resilience is a feature of the system. And if the system is able to kind of fall to the whims of a, of a small group, de defining small whichever way you want, uh, then it's not doing what it's supposed to do. And there are plenty of other cryptocurrencies that are more centralized that have easier governance by, by being you know, more open to that. I don't think that's what Bitcoin should be. I think it should be the re resilient and robust system. Uh, but that's my personal opinion. And of course, the market decides what it's going to be. And we're going to find out. Uh, you know, that's part of being on this journey. So we'll see how it works. But I do think that's the big difference between you know, the fee situation now versus a split in the governance over one scaling decision and really over a power struggle over who gets to make the rules. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content was provided by Andreas Antonopoulos. Music by Jared Rubens. See you next time.